my friends, and welcome to another episode of Monolith Seeker. I am your host, Steve Osborne, and I want to thank you so much for tuning into this episode. I've been waiting a while to get around to this one, and uh, finally decided I wanted to take a break from the Reincarnation series to cover it. Um, we will be talking today about one of the most well-known and controversial occult books of the 20th century. Um, yeah, today we're going to cover The Kabbalion by Three Initiates. Uh, the Kabbalion is a book that came into my life pretty synchronistically. I was looking for a completely different book. Um, I was searching for... I have a physical copy of a book called The Initiate, which I still have not read. Uh, but I was looking for an audiobook version of it to listen to at work. And I couldn't find that anywhere, but I did find this book. And it came up because Three Initiates is pretty close to The Initiate. I'd never heard of it before. I, I read the description of it and, you know, looked at some reviews of it and figured, okay, this might be a worthwhile listen. And it blew my mind. It really tore my mind open and let me uh, think about, absorb, and chew on some concepts that I had never heard put into words before. I had never seen such structure with these ideas, and I was really blown away by it. It... Uh, I have to say that it definitely was a big part in my spiritual journey, especially early on. Um, but as I've kind of gone a little further on that, even just a few years into this spiritual journey I'm on, uh, looking back at it and reading it now, I have a very different opinion on it, partially because of some new information that has come to light. Uh, to me, it's not new information for everybody else. If you do any research on this book, most of this information is pretty easy to find, but, uh, partially because also I have just grown to learn to feel things and let what resonates with me resonate. And the things that sparked so many amazing thoughts in me before, now I look at them and they have kind of a rigid structure that I don't necessarily agree with some hierarchy and some things that, uh, don't really sit well with me anymore. But I can't say I can wholesale this, dismiss this book. There are plenty of people who would say that, uh, particularly practicing magicians of the hermetic tradition. A lot of them will say this book claims to be a hermetic teaching, and they will say that it outright is not. Um, it doesn't match up to their practices or the well-documented history of hermetic teachings that span all the way back to ancient Greece and ancient Egypt. Um, but there are others who say that this is essentially a distilled version of those teachings and it's kind of structured in a way that allows for a simpler translation of these principles, uh, the higher principles of Hermeticism into something that more people can understand broadly and that doesn't have necessarily to do with ceremonial magic. Um, there's different takes on the why that is, though, and I'll get into that in a little bit. But first of all, I think I should probably start off with historically what Hermeticism is. So Hermeticism is a marriage of Greek philosophy and Egyptian philosophy. So the story kind of goes that uh, during the time when the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, the time of Plato, maybe a little before Plato even, uh, were meeting with the Greeks for the or with the uh, excuse me the Egyptians for the first time. Uh, when they met them by that time, the Egyptian culture was already as ancient to them or more so than ancient Greek is to us now. So Egypt had been around for a very very long time, 
But the Greeks had deified this person named Hermes. They had made him the messenger of the gods. And as they were discussing the concepts that came from Hermes with the Egyptians, the Egyptians were like, oh, that sounds exactly like our god of wisdom, Thoth. Um, so they kind of realized and maybe through a little bit of colonization here as well, this is where it kind of gets sketchy. You can't really tell at this point what was exactly happening because uh, the Greek kingdom and then the Roman kingdom were spreading into uh, Egypt as it happens. So, uh, but anyways, these teachings all kind of matched up and it seemed like Hermes and Thoth might be the same person. So they started this hermetic tradition around him and they called him Hermes Thoth Trismegistus. Um, in some circles, when you get the Romans in there as well, you'll hear him called, uh, Hermes Mercurius Thoth because, um, Mercury and Hermes, hold the same position in the uh, Roman culture and the Greek culture, respectively. Um, he's also speculated to have been uh, Enoch from the uh, Jewish tradition, the ancient Hebrew tradition, who was like a contemporary of Abraham, uh, potentially even a teacher of Abraham. And uh, that also ties into the ancient Muslim traditions, the traditions of Islam. He is uh, considered to have possibly been the prophet Idris. So Idris and Enoch are confirmed to have been the same person, but uh, we don't know necessarily if that was Hermes because there's also all kinds of speculation that Hermes might actually have been four or five different people uh, that all of their writings and all of their teachings got mixed together into this one long continuous uh, tradition because thousands and thousands of books were said to have been written by Hermes and most of them were burned in the Library of Alexandria when that was taken down, one of the many times it was taken down. So that's kind of the general knowledge history of Hermeticism and Hermes. It's the tradition taught by Hermes to these people that spread out and the uh, Greeks and the Egyptians kind of meshed theirs together and made it into this big tradition that is carried on today. Um, you know, things like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. You might have heard of if you've done any research on Aleister Crowley. He is the most famous member of that order, but he famously left to create his own religion, Thelema. But he used a lot of the structures of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn to create that religion. Uh, I believe L. Ron Hubbard used to really mess with Hermetic magic early on before he decided to make it more sci-fi and turn it into a cult that uh, attracted, uh, you know, celebrities and actors to, uh, you know, I'm talking about Scientology, if you haven't put that together. Uh, <laughs> the Freemasons use a lot of hermetic symbolism, and they claim to be part of that tradition that was handed down through the Rosicrucians and, you know, into all of those ancient societies as well. They kind of all blend together at some point. Um, and, yeah, so... It's been around, it's in the zeitgeist of the world and has been for a very long time. Um, it's very well documented. There are books of magic like the PGM, which is the papyri of Greek magic that has a bit of the Egyptian magic in it as well. Um, I think there is a separate version of it called the PEM, the papyri of Egyptian magic. I'm not too familiar with either of those because I'm not a ceremonial magic person whatsoever. But um, yeah, this is the background of Hermeticism. There's a lot of rich 
history there. It's a lot to be dissected. I really don't have time to do it all right here, but this is the tradition that we're talking about. So the Kabbalion claims to be an oral tradition handed down directly from Hermes from the earliest days of the Egyptian empire uh, all the way down through secret societies of the current day, which was 1908. So some of those secret societies, if not all of them likely still exist in some way, shape, or form if they were a real thing to begin with. Um, so this book claims that the Kabbalion, this uh, oral history, is the seed of all religion throughout the world. And that is something that I kind of definitely bat an eye at and think maybe this is just trying to talk itself up. Because, uh, I don't know, there, there are definitely other religions that have taken things from a completely different angle, uh, societies that were isolated that have come up with their own spiritual practices. Um, you know, there's really no way to say that, that anything seeded from just one place, from one mind, from one tradition, uh, and anything that claims that kind of gives me hesitation right away. But the first time I read this, I didn't really notice that. I kind of just went right over it because I didn't know anything about that. Um, but the, though the Kabbalion, the, the oral tradition of the Kabbalion had never been written down before 1908, it also claims that the truths within the Kabbalion are hidden in religious texts from all societies all over the world, but they're hidden within metaphors. So people read these things and think they actually happen to somebody physical or that they are a real historical story when in fact it is just an allegory or a metaphor for a principle that is covered in the Kabbalion. Uh, and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, but I, I do believe there is some truth to that. Maybe not necessarily that it came from the oral tradition of the Kabbalion, but a lot of what I have been able to re-examine of the Bible, for instance, and, uh, you know, reading books on other occult authors who have dissected different religious traditions. There's a lot of things in there that are spoken as a story that are really easily applied to an allegory of uh, some internal process that you can do to yourself that, you know, will further your spiritual practice. So now that we've covered the history of this, we can kind of dive into the actual, well, at least speculated actual source of where this book came from. So this book came down the pipeline through a publishing house, I believe called Yogi Publishing. Um, and this was a publishing house ran by William Walker Atkinson, who was a well-known author uh, of occult books and new thought books through the early 1800s, or I'm sorry, late 1800s and early 1900s. So uh, kind of the thing about this guy is that a lot of the books that came through his publishing house have very similar use of words, very similar structures, a lot of the same ideas coming through here, even though a lot of them have different names. And it is very heavily speculated. I don't know if it's confirmed, but uh, if you go on the web, on the internet anywhere and look up William Walker Atkinson, it says that it is like 99% confirmed, essentially, that uh, he wrote most of the books that came through his publishing house under different pen names. Um, he used the name Theron Q. Dumont, he wrote, uh, he wrote under the name Magus Incognito. Um, he wrote under his own name as well. But, uh, you know, he tried a lot of different things to see what would catch on. And some of these books, I think it's very important to point out, especially when discussing this book, 
uh, he basically employed the tactic of hardcore cultural appropriation, as it would be referred to today, uh, because he, you know, published books under the name Yogi Ramachakra and uh, a lot of other names that just sounded like they were from, you know, Indian descent. And uh, he would talk about Hinduism and, you know, a lot of Eastern mysticism, which he had researched a lot and he did know a lot about, but obviously using those names to try to give yourself more credit is not something that would be seen as acceptable today. And that also kind of points to, you know, his willingness to do that. Potentially, he would just write a book under the name Three Initiates and say, you know, oh, this is some, uh, you know, crazy oral history that came forward and somebody gave me this and I'm publishing it now. It has to remain anonymous. And if that was his scheme, then he did a wonderful job because this has become one of the most famous occult books of the 20th and 21st century. People still refer to this book all the time. Um, a famous occultist and occult historian, Mitch Horowitz, even just put a movie out about the book. Uh, and it, it stays in the zeitgeist very well. It has seen very many different peaks of popularity throughout history. And uh, I don't think it would have done that if it had just been, you know, w William Walker Atkinson saying, this is what I think about things. <laughs> because he did actually publish a book that basically said all of these same things as a new thought book. And that didn't gain nearly the, pos the, uh, the popularity, excuse me. And uh, that's kind of where people get the idea that this is his book because it matches up with what he was saying already so directly, but he just kind of casted it in the light of this is an ancient Egyptian teaching uh, that comes from, you know, the earliest teacher, Hermes Trismegistus, uh, so that it gives it a little bit more validity than this is something that I've been messing with and that my friends have been messing with since the early 1800s, and we've got this tradition that really works for us. Uh, that pitch wasn't really doing it for anybody, so disguising it uh, in this way, clearly, like I said, worked wonders. So, I don't know. That's also remotely possible that even if William Walker Atkinson did write this book, that he was a member of some secret society that may have given him some kind of teaching. Uh, that's something that I wrestled with early on, like maybe, you know, when I was kind of hurting from hearing that this guy wrote this book and it was just maybe something he came up with off the top of his head and scribbled down. Um, when I heard that, it, it hurt and I wanted to try to make up excuses. So I was like, well, how do they know? How do they know he wasn't in some secret society? And I believe it, he might have been a Freemason. There are uh, different sections of the Freemasons as you go up. So I've been told that, uh, you know, you have access to different groups of people who are working in different circles uh, and with different traditions. Because for some people, you know, Freemasonry is just... I go down to the, you know, the VFW with my friends. I put the sticker on my car and I don't get pulled over as much. And for other people, it is, you know, a study that people really want to dig into and learn the traditions of. So, you know, there are different things that don't really become known to people until they've been ingratiated into it for a long time. So who knows? Who knows um, what that exactly is, but I... Like I said, after this most recent reading, I am definitely more of the mind that this is just a new thought book disguised as hermetic tradition.
Okay, so now that that is all out of the way and we have the controversy basically handled, we can dive into the actual concepts and principles that this book talks about. Um, there are seven major principles uh, that you will see talked about all over the internet if you look up Hermeticism now that are the seven principles of Hermeticism and seven Hermetic principles. I will go through them one at a time here because I don't feel like running down the list and then going back over them over and over again. Um, the first one is the principle of mentalism. Um, and all of these come with some quotes from the uh, what is considered the Kabbalion, the oral tradition. Uh, that's something else that people are very frustrated with with this book is it's very self-referential. There is only one of the maxims or sayings of this text that is actually taken from a legitimate hermetic text, and I'll talk about that when we get to it. But um, yeah, so the principle of mentalism, the quote that comes with it is, the all is mind and the universe is mental. So with that being said, I kind of need to talk about what the all is to be able to talk about what uh, this principle means. And I'm going to be spending a lot more time talking about the all than the principle itself, more than likely. But yeah, we'll get to it. So the all is essentially the concept of the ultimate reality of existence, of everything. The all is everything, and the all is contained within everything, is what the Kabbalion says. And um, there's a quote that comes with one of the chapters on the, the all, that uh, I have included here. And it says, under and back of the universe of time, space, and change is ever found the substantial reality, the fundamental truth. And uh, this is referring to the all. What it's saying is that basically this is the thing that contains all universes, everything that we know. Nothing can be outside of the all um, and nothing can be separate from it. The all is complete unity. It, is encompassing absolutely everything. So this is kind of similar to the concept of God in some religions. This is kind of the uh, concept of uh, Brahman in the Hindu religion, not Brahma, but Brahman, uh, which is like the ultimate reality, exactly what I'm trying to explain here as the all. Um, also, if you're familiar with Sutra and uh, tantric versions of Buddhism, then uh, this is their definition kind of of the Atman. Uh, the Atman also means other things in different versions of Buddhism, but uh, particularly those two kind of bear a resemblance to this version of the all. Um, so there's a lot of things that it says about it. It says the all is unknowable. So there's no way that we can wrap our minds around it because we can't conceive of it. Um, it is the thing that we are contained within. Like I said, nothing is outside of it. When I was trying to um, wrap my head around this, it took me a long time. Uh, even outside of this type of teaching, even outside of the Kabbalion, I have heard a lot of people try to describe this concept because this is something that permeates so many religions. And this is something that um, maybe not exactly the way that this book explains it, which I'll get into in a minute. But this is something that I believe wholeheartedly. This is something I've experienced, I believe, in my uh, meditations and in my psychedelic journeys. This is something that uh, makes sense to me. It resonates with me to my core. 
And um, I've heard so many people over the years say that uh, when they try to describe God, what they will say is that God is a sphere whose center is everywhere and whose radius, whose, you know, outside circumference is nowhere. And that didn't make any sense to me for the longest time until I sat down and thought about it and made it a 2D picture. And the way that I conceived of it is if you draw a picture, or I'm sorry, if you draw a circle on a piece of paper and concentrate on the center of that circle inside of the lines, and that space inside of the lines is all that exists. Nothing exists outside of that circle. And then you try to think about how you would create a universe with only that existing and it not being able to separate, it not being, there's nothing outside of it to create out of or to create with. So where would a God that is all that exists create everything? And it would have to be internally. It would have to be inside. It would have to make universes, uh, beings, all kinds of experiences. It would have to all come from within itself and be made of itself. So everything, the entire universe, maybe multiple universes, uh, all types of higher dimensional beings, anything that you could possibly conceive of would have to exist inside of that circle. And then thinking about it, because there is nothing outside of it, that circle would have no end either. There would be no edges on it. You'd have to erase the edges and just, it just is. Everything that is, is in that space. That was the way that I was able to conceive of it. I don't know if that will do you any good, but I just thought I would throw that out there because that was a picture that came to my mind when I was meditating on it one day. So needless to say that this all, this, uh, you know, infinite expanse that we are all contained within, uh, that is all of us and in all of us and that we make up it, uh, it is outside of personification is something that the Gawalion really lands on hard because it says that, you know, so many people take the concept of God and try to make it into themselves. They try to make it jealous. They try to make it, uh, you know, desire praise. They try to make it wrathful. And it isn't any of those things. It just is. It is experiencing. It is uh, exploring. And it is on its outside unchanging. But here it is evolving. Here at this level, at the physical level, at the mental level, and at the lower spiritual levels, it is evolving into what it already is outside of all of this. It's basically what sounds like a big mental game. <laughs> and that is basically how the Kabbalion describes it, and that is one of the things that I actually really liked about this. Um, so it basically says that the spirit the nature of the all is actually spirit, that the nature of the all is the highest level of spirit that there is. Um, and that the levels of spirit are completely uncomprehensible to us so that we should just not talk about them at all and view the all as a mind, as one big infinite expanding mind that encompasses absolutely everything that is. And that everything that is, is literally just a mental creation of the all. So that's what it means by the all is mind and the universe is mental. Um, you know, when we say mind, we think of a brain, a physical brain. That's not what this is. This is a consciousness, a uh, high, like I said, infinite expanding 
whatever. <laughs> it is the substantial reality of everything that we are all one. We are all part of this, uh, just having different experiences to see what it's like to view things as what it would be like if we were separate. So the truth of everything is that nothing is separate, but the reality that we live in that we're faced with is separation, the illusion of separation, because that is what the all wants to experience. And there's a lot of um, philosophical talking about why that might be in this book, but it basically comes to the conclusion of trying to figure out the reasoning or the purpose of the all doing anything is basically a fool's errand because you just run into paradox after paradox after paradox by trying to uh, come up with a logical reason for it because we are beings bound by bodies and most of our experience is done through these bodies. So the idea of infinite, the idea of expansive, uh, you know, just doesn't even work with us. So it's as we go through our evolution uh, back towards the all, we will understand that in time. So um, let me see where I was with all of this. So yeah, nothing is outside of the all. Um, the nature of the all is spirit, but we talk about it in mental terms. Uh, the all contains all, but also is in all, which I think is a really hard concept to kind of nail down because uh, I think the best way in my head that I've been able to analogize it is like DNA because uh, every cell of our body, no matter what it is, I've talked about this in other episodes, every cell of our body has the coding for our entire body. So whether it's a fingernail or a hair follicle or, you know, lower levels of skin, fat, liver, heart, intestines, uh, muscles, bones, whatever it is, it has the imprint, the information to make up the entire body, even though each cell is only specifically working on the one thing that it's working on. And I like to think of that as our spiritual imprint. We have the spiritual DNA of the all. We contain uh, the information of the entire universe, of all of the universes that ever exist, everything that is and even isn't in existence, everything that is even possibly conceivable is contained within our spiritual DNA is what I've been thinking of it as. I don't really know of a way to clarify it more than that, but that is the analogy that really stands out the most to me. So yeah, let's get back to this. Some of my notes here. Um, so one of the things that kind of rubs me the wrong way about this book is with everything I've just said, I'm basically using a lot of the concepts that uh, this this book has pointed out like a lot this book really tries to word things. I mean, I put my own spin and my own analogies in here, but it really explains things as that. But then it goes out of its way to say that anyone who would say that I am God is a fool and that it would be the equivalent of a corpuscle quote unquote. It uses the word corpuscle a ton in this book. It's referring to subatomic particles and atomic particles when it says corpuscles, um, but it says that it would be the equivalent of a corpuscle in your body saying that I am the body. And while that is 
maybe an attractive thing to think about to try to separate yourself from the all and say, I am not the all. I am not God. I am not, you know, Brahmin. I am not any of these things. Um, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's not a good analogy. Because if we're talking about mental creation here, if we're talking about something that I am using my energy focus and potentially meditation, my imagination to make up, I'm not doing that to every electron in my body. I'm constantly shedding electrons uh, as I move through life. Atoms and electrons are just falling all over the place around us, you know? Uh, they, they're, they're just out there. So to, to say that that is what we would compare this to uh, would be completely inaccurate because to, like the, the other example it likes to use in this book, just to, just to kind of give more, uh, more of a firm grasp on it, uh, it talks about Shakespeare and Shakespeare's characters. And it says that if you were to go into the mind of Shakespeare and look at the characters in his plays, um, it talks about Dickens as well. If you were to look at these characters, um, it tries to say that these characters have a life of their own while also being a creation of Shakespeare and Dickens. But the thing that I don't like about that is the, the character that has the life of its own exists outside of Shakespeare and Dickens. And if we're talking about the all, nothing exists outside of the all. So we would be looking specifically inside of William Shakespeare's mind just to narrow it down. And they like to, the, in the book, it talks about how it would be just as absurd for us to say that we are God or we are the all as it would be for one of the random onstage characters in a uh, Shakespeare story to turn around and say, I am William Shakespeare. But if you were looking at what was happening inside William Shakespeare's mind, if we're, if we're making this analogy more accurate, you would be looking inside of the brain, inside of the mental structures, the mental visualizations, the imagination of William Shakespeare. And he is intentionally focusing and placing all of those people on that stage. He's making the entire scenery up. He is putting every single background character in its place in his mind. So these are all creations that he is focusing on and he is concentrating on. And if in that space, any character on that stage, on this mental imaginary stage of William Shakespeare's were to turn around and look into, you know, the, the front view of William Shakespeare in his mind and say, I am William Shakespeare, would they be wrong? And I don't think so because he's projecting that. He is imagining that he is putting it there. He is the only one that that exists for. So it is him in a sense. He is creating it out of himself. How is it not him? So I, I just don't, maybe this is something that is beyond my grasp, but I think that this is artificial duality. I think that they are trying to put a uh, buffer on telling people that they are God, that they are inherently divine, which is what I believe. I believe we all are inherently divine. It also says a lot of hierarchical things in here, talking about the lowly earthworm and how it would be absurd to say that such a creature is the all. But it, again, same analogy. If it is a creation of the all, made out of the all, contains the all within it, then why is it so absurd? And what makes it lowly? What takes away from its divinity just because you don't think that it deserves consideration? There's a lot of bias in this, and like I said, a lot of hierarchy that really rubs me the wrong way. I don't like these distinctions at all. 
They just don't sit well with me. And uh, it's crazy because it says that. And then again, in a later chapter, it says uh, the all and the many are the same. The difference between is merely a matter of mental manifestation. And if that is the case, then why are we doing all this distinction? Why are we doing all of this separation? It doesn't make any sense. So that is my first, I mean, outside of the potential entirely fabricated history of this book, this is my first main beef with the principles of the book, is that it seems to be limiting things that don't need to be limited, and it seems to be placing hierarchies in ways and in places that it doesn't belong. Because if we're talking about how everything is one, then there doesn't need to be any hierarchy. There doesn't need to be any separation when we're talking about this large, all-encompassing concept. And I think that's something that we all feel and we're all moving towards. So all of this is just covering the all. I haven't even gotten to the principle of mentalism yet. Uh, basically, the principle of mentalism describes what I was trying to discuss with the universe being contained within the mind of the all. And the principle of mentalism basically says that we have our own minds as kind of a fractal version of what the mind of the all is. So the universe being mental, we can use our own mental powers to manipulate the universe. And that is 100% new thought kind of stuff. That is like the teachings of new thought. And I will elaborate on that as we go through these principles more because they really pan it out a lot more. But that's kind of where this all comes from is the new thought realm of things. Um, I also don't think that we need to negate the spirit entirely. Like I said at the top of this, the actual nature of the all in this book and in my own belief system is that the all is spirit. And just because we can't talk about that, just because we can't verbalize that uh, in what it really means in like a real philo philosophical way, doesn't mean that we can't address the spirit, at least in some way. Because though I have not been able to ever talk about what my experience with spirit is, I have had experiences with spirit. When we talk about, and when I have talked about on this show, all of these different people who have had near-death experiences, people who remember past lives and the time between, people in the next episode that I'll be doing on the reincarnation series who have these experiences of hypnotic regression, uh, where they find these in-between spaces and these new spiritual spaces and psychedelic experiences in deep meditation and, and ecstatic prayer states. We have these experiences as beings that don't fit into our logical minds. They don't work with our view of reality. And they are completely ineffable is the only word to say to describe them. There aren't words to describe these experiences. However, the impressions from these places can come through us and be used by us. They can be absorbed by us. And I believe that if you can open yourself up to that higher place, that higher spirit, that it can move through you and that you can live as that higher place in yourself, even if you are not always mentally comprehending exactly what's happening. I think that that is 100% plausible and something that needs to be at least addressed here. Um, I don't really know how to go into it any further because, like I said, most of the concepts within are ineffable. But there are people who have had these really unexplainable experiences where something just drops into their head. People who, you know, channel beings that 
they don't know about that they've never seen before and, and have information that they have no other way of getting. People like Albert Einstein and, and other scientists and mathematicians that say things were just kind of dropped into their head while they were in kind of a trance state. Things just kind of come to them. Uh, information can be brought back from those sides, from that spiritual place, I, I believe. But it doesn't always, and most of the time, doesn't at all look like information. It's just something that clicks into place with the knowledge that you already have. You get a bigger outside picture of something, and when you come back from it, you can kind of piece it together in a way that will then make sense to the rest of the world. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of babbling on about this at this point. So uh, that's all I'm going to say about the first principle. The all is mine. The universe is mental. You can use your mind to change the universe. That is the gist of it. <laughs> okay, so we can dive into the second principle now, which is the principle of correspondence. Um, this is actually the one thing that this book talks about that is talked about in other hermetic writings. Uh, I believe that this maxim comes from the Emerald Tablet, but I can't remember. I probably should have prepped that beforehand, but, you know, here we are. We're doing it anyways. Um, the maxim that comes with it is, as above, so below, as below, so above. Um, there's an extended version of this that also says, as within, so without, as without, so within. These are some of the more popular occult sayings. They're on bumper stickers. They're kind of all over the place. As above, so below is one of the... Uh, yeah, it, it's just huge. It's out there all over the place. It's one of the things that reverberates from these hermetic teachings into the zeitgeist all over the place. Um, how many more times can I say all over the place? <laughs> uh, anyways, so this basically starts by talking about the three great planes. Um, and I mentioned them a little bit before, but I didn't talk about them in detail. We're talking about the spiritual plane, the mental plane, and the physical plane. Now, the book itself says that the divisions between these three planes are actually arbitrary, that uh, there isn't any definite defining line between where, you know, physical ends and mental starts and where mental ends and spiritual starts. They all kind of mesh together and they all kind of work through each other. Um, so let me get a little bit more in detail. I'm going to look in the book here to describe some of these subsections of these planes because each of the three great planes has seven subsections within them, which is something else that people like to point to and make fun of that maybe William Walker Atkinson was just on some shit with seven and thought that seven was an important number. So he made everything seven in this book. Um, so the physical plane is broken up into seven pieces. Like I said, the first three planes are the plane of matter A, B, and C. Um, these are basically just different types of matter. Um, a being, uh, you know, what we know of as matter, what we think of as matter, such as like, uh, you know, gas, solid, liquid. Um, B and C kind of get into more subtle ideas that I don't really know that they need any distinction from the other regular forms of matter, but that's how it's done here. Um, the fourth plane is the plane of ethereal substance, which I think is an interesting concept because when we think of the ether, uh, we kind of think of out there more uh, spiritual or maybe mental concepts. But here it's saying that the ether is a physical medium 
through which the higher planes of physicality, which I can just go ahead and say that the fifth, sixth, and seventh planes are the planes of energy A, B, and C. These are different types of energy, such as light, magnetism, those kinds of things. Um, it says in this book that the third plane, the plane of matter C, and that the planes of energy B and C are dealing with concepts that we have not yet discovered in science, types of energy that we have not yet come across. But the ethereal substance, the ethereal plane, is basically how these energetic substances and even upwards into the uh, mental planes, uh, they are so subtle that they need kind of a medium to work with and to travel through, that light needs a medium to travel through to interact with our matter that, you know, we're made of. Uh, so that's what the ether is, according to this book, is the medium of, uh, you know, exchange between higher energy and mental uh, powers and, you know, how they affect the physical realm. Um, getting into the mental plane now, I'm not going to go too in-depth on this principle because um, some of these principles I don't think need to be gone too in-depth and some of them really need to be dissected pretty heavily. Um, so yeah, the mental plane is also made up of seven subsections. Like I said, the plane of mineral mind is one. The plane of elemental mind, A, is two. The plane of plant mind is three. The plane of elemental mind, B, is four. The plane of animal mind is five. The plane of elemental mind, C, is six. And the seventh plane is the plane of human mind. So again, I have to go back and say that the book itself does say that these things are arbitrary. It says that um, these divisions are arbitrary and that, you know, they don't actually mean anything. They're just a way to kind of break things up to look at them and examine them. But I still have a hard time with the kind of uh, artificial and enforced hierarchy here to say that our minds work on an entirely higher and different plane than the animal, plant, and mineral minds. I think, you know, we have higher forms of physical expression for sure. And maybe we do have higher forms of mental expression. I'm not saying that that's a definite thing that we don't have. But to say that, you know, we are definitely above all of these things and that, you know, it makes it seem as if we may not even be able to interact with them, which I do believe we can. Um, you know, I, I just have a sticking point with any hierarchy, so maybe that's my thing. Maybe that's my own judgment on things. I just don't like to see things laid out in those levels. And because I know from other examples in this book that they kind of go out of their way to enforce hierarchy in a way that I don't think it needs to be at all, I'm skittish around it anytime it happens. But... Yeah, again, the other thing that I want to point to in the mental uh, plane here is that uh, it talks about elementals. And elementals are something that not a lot of people are familiar with. Um, elementals kind of come into the realm of folklore. Um, it's something that people talk about of, you know, the these in ancient versions and you know old traditional versions of folklore there are 
you know, rock spirits, tree spirits, animal spirits that will, you know, interact with the animals and with us that can, you know, sometimes be seen by humans and interacted with. Um, and I don't know a whole lot about this, so I'm not going to go too in depth with it, but, uh, these beings seem to exist solely on the mental plane. They are parts of the mental plane. And while I do believe that that is a possibility, I also don't see how them being solely mental beings, that they would be below us in the vibratory expression of the mental plane. Again, it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to put humans at the top, but, uh, you know, a lot of religions and a lot of science even likes to do that. So here we are. This book also um, goes out of its way a little bit to dissect the seven levels of the human mind. It says the human mind is set up into seven levels as well, and that um, humans are evolving kind of in groups, but also there are breakaway people who are having their own higher evolutions through these rings, and that at the time of this book being written, uh, it says that most people were on the fifth level, that there were still some of those that were vibrating down on the third and fourth levels, and that some of the most adept teachers and masters uh, that are on the planet are up in the sixth and seventh levels. You know, the seventh level would be the people you hear about in old Eastern traditions that are living in caves and holding humanity in their meditative thoughts of love and trying to keep everything from spiraling too far out of control. Uh, <laughs> I believe that's what they're referring to as the seventh level. Um, but yeah, again, who knows? It all seems kind of arbitrary to me. Um, yeah, so now we're on to the spiritual plane, the last plane of these. And this book does not elaborate much on the spiritual plane. It basically says that um, even the people who are on the sixth and seventh planes of the human mental plane would have a hard time grasping the spiritual plane, that it is so far above and beyond us that, uh, you know, we basically have no, no contact with it almost is what it makes it sound like. It says that the lowest level of the mental plane, or I'm sorry, the spiritual plane are what we would refer to as like masters and adepts that are basically just beyond needing to incarnate in a body is what it kind of sounds like. Um, and then above them are beings that we would refer to as angels, um, you know, beings of light, those kinds of things. And then above that are things that it says that we could refer to without any kind of hyperbole as the gods. And then a little beyond that is the highest point of all of the spiritual planes, uh, which is the all. And yeah, I, I'll talk a little bit more about the makeup and the way that these things work when we talk about the next principle. But uh, this principle and the way that it talks about it bothers me quite a bit because to say that we are only existing on the physical and mental plane as beings doesn't make any sense with the model that it gives. So if the all is coming from the highest point of spirituality and projecting us into the physical realm, it would have to project us directly from itself through the spiritual plane, through the mental plane, and into the physical plane. 
So how is there no representation for us, for the animals, for the plants, for the elementals on this spiritual plane? I don't see how it could possibly be a completely separate thing. I do believe that it may be possible that there are beings that only exist on that plane that do not project into the mental or physical realities. But to say that anything that is on the mental or physical realities doesn't have any kind of representation on the, the spiritual reality, the spiritual plane, seems to kind of sever your connection to the all. And I just don't believe that's how that works at all. It doesn't resonate with me at all to think that way. Like I said before, uh, I believe that we do have a strong connection to spirit, that we do have a direct connection to the all, to God, to Allah, to whatever you want to call it, Brahman. All of these different versions of it exist all over the place. And I believe wholeheartedly because I have touched that place in myself that has a connection to all of this. And to say that that doesn't exist just rubs me the wrong way. I don't know how many ways I can say that without just sounding like I'm repeating myself over and over again. But anyways, let's keep on trucking. So to wrap up uh, the principle of correspondence, uh, basically what we're working with here are things like fractals. <laughs> uh, if you know what fractals are, it's or you don't know what fractals are, uh, basically things like the golden ratio, that spiral that is found uh, it is the same spiral uh, mathematically that makes up hurricanes that is found in seashell formations. Um, you know, it's found in certain stages of fetal growth. It is everywhere. It is all over nature. It is like the same measure of the spiral of galaxies and uh, solar systems and all of these different things. Um, and the way fractals work in magic is basically by focusing and using representation of fractals on the lower level, it is believed that you can uh, manipulate or work with the energies of the fractal representation of that on the higher level. So I don't, not to say that this is how it works at all, because again, I'm not a magic practitioner whatsoever, but if you were to try to harness the energy of that spiral, just for instance, because that's what I use as an example, um, inside of the seashell. If you were to use that in a magic ritual to try to affect something else that has that shape, such as maybe a hurricane to change its path or whatever, uh, the change that you could make to that spiral would then, if done correctly, potentially affect the direction of that hurricane. At least that is the more magical side of it and what I have learned to understand of it. But uh, the idea is as above, so below, as below, so above. Manipulating, again, like I said, when I was talking about the principle of mentalism, if the all is mind and the universe is mental, again, we get back to by being able to manipulate your own mind, it is then inferred that you would be able to manipulate the manifestations that come from the mental universe. And that, again, big new thought movement thing. Uh, big thing within their circles. Um, one of the more controversial things that they believe is that all disease, all problems with your body essentially uh, stem from mental problems, from, uh, you know, wrong thinking and those kinds of things, which um, I think there might be a little merit to the idea that your mental state affects your physical state, I believe, obviously, like, there's, 
I, I believe science to back that up that, you know, obviously with things like the placebo effect, you believe you're being treated, you believe you're getting something that's helping you and all of a sudden your body starts healing itself. Um, I talked about it in the last near-death experiences episode with Melon Thomas Benedict. He believed that humans were a cancer and that, you know, the best thing that could happen to us would be to be wiped out. And after thinking for years and years and years, using his mind to project that we are a cancer uh, out into the universe, he developed brain cancer. Uh, <laughs> you know, there are things that kind of point to that having some merit, but they kind of take it a step further and, and make it a thing where it's victim blaming. Like, you know, if only you had thought better about yourself in the world, you wouldn't be in this circumstance, you know? <laughs> and I don't believe that that's right at all. That doesn't help anybody. And uh, also they don't believe in a lot of cases. I mean, this differs from person to person, but this is something that, uh, you know, when it's more sensationalized and when people want to get more argumentative about it, you know, they'll say, you don't need doctors at all. You just need to think better. You just need to think right. And uh, you can heal yourself. And maybe there's something to that, but most people aren't on that level. And uh, most people who would try to do that would probably just end up dying. So uh, let's keep doctors and hospitals and, you know, all, all of that stuff. We definitely need medical care. I'm not, uh, I'm not of that mindset at all. As much as there are things in New Thought that do work in my mindset, that is one that I'm, I'm not with at all. But yeah, that is another example of as above, so below. If your higher state, your mental state isn't right, then your body is going to manifest something bad. And uh, vice versa. If you think positively uh, and you work with positive energy and positive vibrations, you can manifest those things in the physical realm. You know, maybe there's something to that. Uh, who's to say? So... Yeah, that's it for that. And now we are on to the principle of vibration, which is kind of what I was just talking about a little bit. This is the third hermetic principle, if you're keeping up. Um, yeah, the principle of vibration. Nothing rests, everything moves, everything vibrates. That is the maxim that is given to you with this concept. Um, this is kind of reminiscent of string theory, and uh, it definitely points to... Uh, the atomic level of things and how atoms and, and the energy within atoms are constantly moving. And the smaller and smaller down you go, you see that everything's vibrating. Um, you know, that is kind of the principle of temperature as well. You know, uh, when you learn about temperature in science class, they talk about the concept of basically the thing that determines temperature is the motion and the vibration of the particles and that the the theoretical absolute zero would be the coldest anything could get because it would stop all movement whatsoever. And as far as I know, that's still completely theoretical. That's not something we've been able to do, but that, that is the idea of it. Um, vibration is the thing that basically animates everything. And, uh, it is kind of what brings about the idea and something that I do kind of subscribe to, uh, maybe more than kind of, this is kind of the way, this is the way I think things work essentially is that the physical realm is just energy slowed down to, uh, a hard, gross state that can be touched and interacted with. Um, yeah, so essentially the, uh, the book does a really good job of explaining 
how vibration works as far as the planes go by talking about a simple experiment that is done in a lot of science classes and then taking it a step further. So the idea of this experiment or this thought experiment, this illustration, is that you would take a top or a cylinder um, that is made of some kind of indestructible material. Um, you can imagine it being a metal top or a metal cylinder and uh, put that on a flat surface that would also be indestructible. And I'm just saying indestructible for the purpose of the thought experiment because the reality of this is much different than the thought experiment is going to be able to pan out. So in this illustration, uh, you would start turning the top or the cylinder uh, in a circle, a slow, slow circle as it rests on this surface. And the grinding of the cylinder against that surface would create a vibration. Um, it would be a very slow and low vibration as you're doing it uh, at, you know, at your slowest rate. And that would start to produce a sound, uh, a low growling sound. And as you started to gradually speed that up, it would turn into something that would register as a low level musical note, something that would, you know, register on our scale <laughs> of hearing of pleasant sounds. And as you were to turn that cylinder faster and faster, it would slowly begin to rise through all the levels of all the scales that you could hear. And then eventually you wouldn't be able to hear it anymore. The sound would stop because it'd be going too fast at that point. Um, and you know, the vibration would be higher than our ability to hear. So, once we get to that point, the friction would start to build up. And that vibration would start to create uh, heat and light. And at first, you would get a very dull red glow um, because that is the lowest uh, level of visible light in our physical sight. So, yeah, low, low and slow still, we're at red glowing light as you speed it up more and more. It would go from red to orange. It would heat up more and more and it would go from orange to more yellow. And then it would start to shift into green, blue, indigo, and violet. And then we would be outside of the color spectrum entirely. So this is the level where the science experiment side of this would stop. And uh, this is where the hermetic experiment starts to keep going. Uh, the science experiment would stop because you really don't need to you know, exhibit anything further than the visible color spectrum. And also whatever you're grinding <laughs> on these surfaces would begin to completely deconstruct at this point when they become no longer visible uh, because the light that was being emitted would be going into the ultraviolet realm. You would start to get up into x-rays and gamma rays and things like that, things that, uh, you know, cause radiation <laughs> and that's the high level of vibration that we're dealing with um, and this would go through the entire physical plane until it got to you know the the ethereal substance and the higher theoretical energies according to this book that uh, we don't know about yet and then if somehow <laughs> you were able to keep these particles that used to make up a cylinder still vibrating faster and faster. If something were able to keep this thing spinning and creating faster and faster vibration, 
you would eventually break into with that vibration, with that speed of vibration, uh, the mental plane. That is, that is like essentially the separation between the mental and physical plane is just higher vibration. Um, so yeah, you keep on speeding this up more and more. You would go through all of the levels of the mental plane, the, the rocks, the elementals, the plants, the animals, the human mental plane. And then if somehow you were able to still keep this spinning and vibrating faster and faster, you would then begin to move up into the spirit realm. And eventually you would reach a point where the vibration of whatever this is that we're dealing with now, this now spiritual object that doesn't make any sense because spiritual and object, uh, you know, in these terms, yeah, it just doesn't really match up. But this is, you know, the theoretical thought process that you could go all the way up to the spiritual realm until the vibration is happening so fast that it just becomes the all again, that it just becomes the purest absolute reality that there is, because that is the highest level. Um, the way that this describes vibration is it says that at the lowest levels, the gross uh, physical levels of vibration, that uh, everything is vibrating so slow that it appears to be still. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever looked at any illustrations of electrons, it doesn't look like they're vibrating slow at all, but that is where we're at right now in this gross physical form. Um, you know, the, the theoretical absolute zero would be getting that down to the non-movement of any particle whatsoever, which again, like I said, is still theoretical, I believe. And uh, the highest point of vibration is moving so fast that it looks like it's sitting still. Uh, and... My question is, who does it look like that to? Because on this plane with our physical eyes, you know, you can spin a wheel fast enough that it looks like it's sitting still. So who's observing it up there to see that the all looks still, even though it's moving faster than anything else? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's just kind of crazy to put it that way to me. I know it's it's like a good image. I think that it that it's uh, you know a nice illustration. But when I actually stopped to think about it, I was like, wait, who's looking at this? Who's who's examining this and saying that that looks pretty still to me? Because as soon as you get to that level where you could observe that, then you would just be part of the all, and you would not be observing anything because you would be the oneness that is all. So great. Um, let's see here. So yeah, with vibration, basically what they're saying with this is that thoughts and emotions have a vibrational frequency. And that's the important thing to take away from this as that, um, basically what we were saying in the other, uh, two principles is that using the vibration of your mental plane and your emotional states, you can kind of, uh, you know, focus on and manipulate the way that you feel and think by focusing on the different vibrations and understanding that like attracts like. That it is another um, new thought thing. That is something that is presented as the law of attraction, which uh, William Walker Atkinson wrote a book on the law of attraction. So there's another little tie-in there. Um, the law of attraction essentially says that if you project pos positivity, if you project, um, you know, the attitude 
of what you want in life, if you act like you already have it and you vibrate at the level of I'm already there, then those things will just naturally be drawn to you. Maybe not exactly in the way that you want them to, but they will come about some way or another. Very new thought, like I'm saying. Um, and again, the opposite is true as well. If you are constantly down on yourself and just talking about how I always get the shit end of the stick no matter what, uh, you're just going to keep finding the shit end of the stick everywhere you look because that is, you know, what you're attracting with that low vibration. Um, obviously, you might have caught on now that this is something else that has permeated the zeitgeist because uh, good vibes, high vibes, those kinds of things are things that are talked about in a very nonchalant and, uh, you know, ironic way often in today's language. Uh, that's where this comes from. That is, this is legitimately what that concept is, is the vibration of everything. The higher the vibration, uh, you know, the closer to the all and the lower the vibration, the more dense and further away it is. Um, some might try to classify that as good or evil. And when you look at it from this more objective standpoint, it's just different, different levels of frequency. Um, Oh, actually, that transitions perfectly into our fourth principle, the principle of polarity. So the quote that goes with this principle is, everything is dual. Everything has its poles. Everything has its pairs of opposites. Like and unlike are the same. Opposites are identical in nature, but different in degree. Extremes meet. All truths are but half-truths. All paradoxes may be reconciled. So this is more easily summed up as the principle of duality. And this is something that obviously um, kind of is the opposite of the concept of the all. This is something that is only expressed, uh, maybe, I mean, it, it's expressed in anything that uh, perceives itself as separate from the all. Uh, that is something that is an illusion. This is an illusory universe. It's just something I didn't say earlier. Maybe I did, I can't remember now. But the idea behind the all is that it, it is the only absolute and that what we're living through is essentially, um, I mean, while we're living in it, it is real. There is a reality to it. This is one of those paradoxes that it is saying will be reconciled. Um, that the all that as it stands is the only real reality, that this is an illusion. But since this is a projection of the all, uh, it is all reconciled back into the all and duality exists here, but not at the highest level. Uh, that is kind of a rambling version of it, but I don't feel like going back and changing it. So we'll keep on moving. Um, so essentially what this is trying to say is that every idea that seems to be opposites, that seems to be uh, polar, hate and love, hot and cold, um, you know, <laughs> all the other ones, <laughs> um, that, you know, fear and courage, they give so many examples, but it's saying that they are the same thing, that they are substantially exactly the same, that they are just different sides of the same thing. So that essentially fear and courage are the same concept. Uh, they are just different vibrations of that concept. So fear would be the low vibration and courage would be the high vibration. And if you were feeling fear, the way to do that would be to use the principle of polarity 
to manipulate your vibration to the higher side of that same concept, uh, which would be courage. So if you know what courage feels like, you can focus on the vibration that resonates through your body when you feel courageous anytime you're feeling afraid, and you can transmute that uh, fear into courage. Same thing with love and hate. Um, now, in a lot of spiritual teachings, uh, it says that the opposite of love is fear. And that is like a bigger, wider concept than this like simple polarity concept. Um, love and fear are the driving forces behind things and not just the vibrations that you're feeling in interaction as, as much as, I mean, they are that as well. Love and fear are two different things that you can uh, vibrate into, but uh, hate would be something more akin to fear and love, you know, obviously is on the love side of the spectrum. And I think that there's plenty of emotions that you could do this polarization to and, you know, courage and fear. Again, if we were to go back to that example, um, obviously fear is going to be on the fear side of the spectrum. Courage is more on the love side of the spectrum. Um, you know, openness and closeness. If I'm closing myself off, I'm be more towards the fear side of the spectrum. If I'm opening myself up, I'd be more on the love side of the spectrum. The book doesn't talk about this exactly, but I'm just trying to relate this to um, other spiritual teachings that I think are important to understand that, you know, there is a polarity of love and fear, but when we're coming down to specific, um, you know, poles of one concept, we're not talking about love and fear in these specific examples. Um, this book also goes into like physical examples of this as well. Uh, so like I've been talking about this whole episode, hot and cold are a big one. Obviously it's the same concept of temperature, but the idea of hot and cold is higher and low vibration uh, along that temperature line. So it's high vibration, low vibration, um, and there's infinite degrees in between as well. Um, you know, something that they like to point out is, is when does hot become cold, that's entirely arbitrary, that's up to you, but you know, everybody has their preferences and what they want to feel, what they want to experience. So um, you would vibrate more towards the side of, you know, which one you would concentrate on that vibration to move the uh, temperature that direction. Um, that's a, just a physical example. Uh, the other thing that they talk about is how you can't change one thing from one concept to another. So you can't make hot dull or cold sharp, but you can make sharp dull and dull sharp. So you have to be working on the right polarity to, to change it by focusing on the vibration. Um, these are, again, just physical examples, but really what they're more worried about are the mental examples, the mental experiences of this. Um, something that I would like to mention here is that this is a easy gateway to spiritual bypass. Um, this is kind of, again, one of those things that you could say, well, I don't like the way I'm feeling right now. Uh, so instead of examining this, I'm just going to focus on when I felt a different way and push myself that direction and, uh, you know, just negate this entirely. Um, you know, I do think that there is some merit to that and not, not letting yourself be overtaken by fear, not letting yourself be overtaken by hate and these other things. But um, it's 
really easy just to be tempted to want to jump into a different state as opposed to sitting down and actually examining where that feelings come from, why it's there, and address it at its root so that it doesn't come back. Um, but with our principle number five, it looks like everything comes back because principle number five is the principle of rhythm. And the quote that comes with us for the principle of rhythm is everything flows out and in. Everything has its tides. All things rise and fall. The pendulum swing manifests in everything. The measure of the swing to the right is the measure of the swing to the left. Rhythm compensates. So basically the idea of this is that everything is within a rhythm, whether that rhythm is uh, huge and goes up to the spiritual plane, whether that you know is mental or physical, it manifests on all levels is what this says. And that, you know, some rhythms, some swings will take multiple lifetimes because this book does address reincarnation. It is part of the teaching of this book as well. Um, but yeah, some swings will take multiple lifetimes. So you may feel the same way or experience similar things, uh, different areas of the swing, you know, building up or dying down uh, on one side of polarity and multiple lifetimes. And then you'll hit a point where you'll have other lifetimes that, you know, where you're swinging into the opposite end of that and building up on the other side. So, you know, potentially many miserable lives slightly getting better and better and better until you get to a point where you are having a, you know, great time. Just for an arbitrary example that is not really given in the book, but it does talk about the multiple lifetimes of things. So basically this rhythm is swinging between the two poles we were just talking about in the fourth principle. Um, it says that everything has this motion. Um, and it applies to, like I said, all levels of things. And the focus of this is essentially to um, learn the vibrational signatures of these different swings and understand that you are going to be flowing in and out of these different vibrations throughout your lifetime, maybe many lifetimes. And the idea is by learning these vibrations, you could focus on the point in the swing that you want to stay at. And by being a master of hermeticism, by being a master hermetist, as they say, um, you would be able to consciously stay at that level that you want to be at and let the pendulum swing back in your unconscious, which again, sounds like spiritual bypass to me. And I don't really, like, maybe I just don't understand the teaching. Maybe this is above me. But also, I just don't see it. Because when you talk about this being something that expresses itself on all levels, and we go back to that experience, that example that we were giving earlier in all the other chapters of hot and cold, if I put a torch to a screw and get it to heat up all the way until it turns glowing bright orange, and then I let it cool off, it isn't going to immediately swing back into the same degree of cold. It isn't going to slow down all the way to being frozen almost, you know? Uh, so when I can think of so easily an example that doesn't work on the physical plane, I have a hard time imagining that it actually works like this on the higher planes. Um, I mean... Again, this could be explained by multiple lifetimes if you want to try to give it that, and I would be willing to listen to it because what do I know? But, you know, everybody knows people who have more of a happy time than a sad time in their life, or vice versa. People who are miserable all the time, but every now and then they're a little bit happy. Those things don't 
always measure out for people. And like I said earlier, you know, maybe somebody is having just a miserable track in multiple lifetimes and then they'll swing into a happy one. But I mean, for this to manifest on every level, it seems like it should be something that's more apparent. And you know, it, it just isn't. It's just not something you see everywhere. There's obviously like very good obvious examples of it, but then there's very good obvious examples where it doesn't work either. So for this to be something universal, I, I'm seeing a lot of holes in it personally. Uh, yeah, so now we'll just go ahead and jump down to the sixth principle, uh, the principle of causation. And the quote that comes with this one is, every cause has its effect, every effect has its cause. Everything happens according to law. Chance is but a name for a law not yet recognized. There are many planes of causation, but nothing escapes law. Sorry, I was reading that, so I stumbled over my words a little bit. <laughs> um, so this is one that I do kind of subscribe to as well. That's the reason I start to call things synchronicities as opposed to coincidences, because um, some of the structure, like I said, of this book does make sense to me. And this is where I start to think, you know, this book says that it is the oral tradition that seeded all other traditions. But uh, I think it might be the opposite because it, it seems to me to have a very similar signature as maybe the Carlos Castaneda stuff. Um, and if you're familiar with Carlos Castaneda or not, essentially he was a man who uh, said that he went to the desert and met a sorcerer named Don Juan who put him through a rigorous initiation, uh, culminating essentially in him jumping off of a cliff and having to survive this uh, tremendous fall through the power of his sorcery. And uh, these books were hugely popular for a long time, uh, especially in the occult circuits. And um, they used to be uh, classified as, you know, true stories. And then I don't know who found this out or how they found it out, but it kind of came to light that rather than go to the desert and have this initiation experience, Carlos Castaneda was actually just going to the library and taking pieces of esoteric occult knowledge throughout history and compiling them into this wonderful narrative that was so captivating to so many people. And, you know, who really knows the truth of that? Again, I'm not one to say absolutes at all. But, uh, you know, Carlos Castaneda started a cult and a bunch of people died, <laughs> whatever. But it seems like uh, William Walker Atkinson may have done the same thing because there are so many truths in here that resonate throughout so many different religions. And as I've said on here before, I believe that all of these different religions that we have um, have core truths in them. And those core truths come from people of different, uh, you know, cultures, different times, looking at the same phenomena and trying to interpret it into something that they can understand and talk about uh, with everybody else around them. So it comes out in all of these different metaphors, but we're all talking about essentially the same thing, uh, maybe just focusing on different aspects of it more. And then as those things come forward, they become more dogmatic and people try to put rules on them and you know it kind of gets all messed up. But the, at the core, there are these truths. And it seems like William Walker Atkinson went through and pulled out some of these things that, you know, resonate in multiple religions and then put them in this book and tried to say, this is, you know, the seedling of those things. And, you know, that's uh, kind of the reverse of what things like theosophy and other people like, 
in the uh, New Thought movement, like Neville Goddard, and even William Walker Atkinson's other books, he talks about the culmination of all these things and how they make sense, as opposed to trying to say this is the seed of truth that spawned all of these other things. So, yeah, I don't know. I just thought that might be worth mentioning here. So, <clears throat> yeah, let's get into causation. Um, so, yeah, it says basically... There's no such thing as chance or coincidence. Uh, it says that straight up front. Um, like I said, that's why I like to use the word synchronicity more because I believe that when things start to line up, uh, that it's not just because it's a coincidence. Again, there's no such thing as that. If you subscribe to this viewpoint, um, it is more so that things are lining up in a certain way for a certain reason. And that reason might be something silly or stupid. Like the thing that's been happening to me recently is that I can't get away from Dr. Katz. Uh, I don't know if you know what Dr. Katz is. It's all on YouTube. It's a great show. It is essentially a stand-up comedian from the 80s and 90s uh, who made a... Uh, Jonathan Katz is his name. He made a cartoon where he is a uh, psychiatrist, a therapist who is talking to stand-up comedians and then they do their routines on his show as if they're talking to a therapist and he responds to them like they're crazy. Uh, it's, it's a funny show. It's a funny premise for a show. A lot of good actors got their starts on there. A lot of good comedians are on there. A lot of household names now. Um, but yeah, love the show. I had a friend come to my house uh, who we watched that show together sometimes and so we put it on and watched it together. And then after she left, I kept watching it a little bit. And then I just started hearing about Dr. Katz everywhere. Uh, friends podcast that I listened to in Cleveland. Uh, he was talking about Dr. Katz the other day. A different podcast I listened to. Uh, just randomly brought up to everybody on the everybody else on the podcast. Have you guys ever watched Dr. Katz? Like, it's just something that I keep seeing over and over and over again. And it's not something that I'm not aware of. So I would know if I was hearing about Dr. Katz all the time prior to this. It's not just one of those things where you learn a new word and then all of a sudden you see it everywhere. It's literally like, I've known about this for a long time and at the very week that I start watching it again with a friend, uh, it starts getting brought up to me over and over and over again. And right before that friend even brought it up, I was thinking about it and how I might wanna watch it again soon. And it's it just like, it just kept that. So, Anyways, this doesn't actually mean anything like on a spiritual sense, maybe. Maybe this has no significant meaning whatsoever. This is a very silly example. I'm aware of that. But it is something that it's like, you know, it seems like there's something behind this. At least like my mental projection into the world is reflecting back at me what I'm putting out to it. And that could be all it is. That could be the only law I'm interacting with that is the, the law of causation or whatever. I'm putting it out there. It's coming back. But that still is something. Um, this talks about, you know, essentially how all the things that we consider to be chance in our life, like uh, rolling of the dice is the example that it talks about most extensively. And uh, what it's talking about is how, you know, we see it as chance because we just throw the thing down and a number comes up and we make bets on that and that's great. But in reality, the dice is landing according to so many mathematical laws that we have no capacity to necessarily calculate, uh, but it is landing on 
the right side up for the amount of force, the angle of the throw, the uh, you know hardness of the dice versus the hardness of the surface, the distance between the you know uh, platform that it's landing on, and maybe if it's bouncing off of anything else or falls off the table or any number of other things, it is it is responding to all of these laws of gravity and inertia and you know. Uh, bouncing off of other things. All of this is calculatable to tell you what it would be if you could have all of those variables ahead of time. Um, but it's just viewed as chance to us. That's basically the like physical version of what we're talking about here. There's so many things that go into play when it comes into causation versus effect uh, that it's hard to narrow it all down and it's hard to make it all make sense. I know my Dr. Katz version of this story doesn't, doesn't make any sense and a lot of people are probably just going to be brushing that off and that's totally fine. It doesn't have to mean anything to you, but it does mean something to me. This is what this show's about. Things that I allow into my brain to break down my reality. Um, you know, maybe I'll feel different about this at another time, but right now this makes sense to me. Synchronicities happen in my life all the time and I find the more that I pay attention to them, the more that they come up and the more that they come up, uh, the more they have some kind of significance in the bearing on my life. The most significance that Dr. Katz has on my life is that it's brought me more joy. That's great. That's all I need out of it. That's wonderful. Um, so let's see here. Uh, it says basically... The, the biggest thing that you can take away from this is that all events in throughout time and throughout, you know, beyond time can be traced back to the all, essentially. It's all like a direct line from the all deciding that this universe uh, should be created in whatever way that it decides that um, and then setting a, about the process of creating it uh, you know, all the way from the first idea of duality all the way down to uh, the most microscopic thing that's happening right now. It is all uh, compounded by law. It is all put in place by law. The, you know, fact that I would not exist at all if, uh, you know, way back in the Stone Age, uh, two people hadn't met and procreated. And maybe this book talks about that. This is the exact example it gives. Perhaps if uh, that same two people never met, William Walker Atkinson would never exist. The entire publishing system that put out this book would never exist. Whole swaths of the population wouldn't exist. And we don't even see each other as related anymore because it's so far back of a distant, uh, you know, past. But those decisions have affected literally every single thing that's happened since then. And we need to be aware of that in the decisions that we make, the mental realities that we're creating, the spiritual realities that we're reacting with, the physical realities that we're inflicting on ourselves and each other. Um, maybe inflicting is a hard, harsh word, but you know, you know what I mean? You, you get it. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, Causation is a pretty simple one to wrap your head around, so I don't think I need to beat that one over the head anymore. I'm going to try to wrap this up with the last principle now, which is going to be a doozy. Um, this is the one that has the most controversy surrounding it, and one of the things that when uh, people of today's uh, society start to interact with magical culture, this is one of the principles that permeates a lot of 
uh, occult thinking that people are instantly turned off by. And I think it's basically because the terms are outdated and uh, the concepts behind it have changed over the years. Uh, the seventh principle is the principle of gender. Um, the quote that comes with it is, gender is in everything. Everything has its masculine and feminine principles. Gender manifests on all planes. Now, this book goes out of its way to say that it is not talking about physical sex. It is not talking about the uh, you know principle of gender roles. It is not talking about those things. Um, when it talks about gender, it is essentially talking about generation. It is talking about procreation. It is talking about the principles behind using the duality of nature to create something new. Now, maybe this would be a good time to talk about the issues with talking about spiritual concepts with the English language, because English is very physical. It is very based in the material world. And when we talk about these higher concepts, these different concepts, we end up having to use a lot of physical metaphor to speak of things that have no physical bearing whatsoever. Uh, you know, and, and other religions, ancient religions, uh, you know, Sanskrit, Hindi, Arabic, uh, Hebrew, current languages that are spoken all over the place that aren't English, uh, all have a lot more mystic quality to them. They have a lot more, um, you know, words that don't have any physical representation. They're describing a concept that lies beyond the physical realm. And even if that is just a mental concept, that's still doing a little bit better than most English words can do. So these things happen uh, in this way where we're, we're talking about this uh, and the hang up that most people will have with this uh, has absolutely nothing to do with the actual principle itself. But I do also understand the hang up because we could update this very easily. Like it's not something that we have to stick to these terms about. Um, let's dig into it a little bit more uh, so that we can dissect it a little bit more. Um, basically, the principle is talking about how we create something new. And it is talking about the combination of two forces, one active and one passive, that would create something new. Um, the active force basically plants the idea uh, or the seed of whatever uh, you're trying to make happen. That would be, you know, considered in these terms, the masculine idea, uh, the masculine force. It would be the thing that, you know, puts the sperm into the womb. <laughs> and then the feminine force, the feminine idea, would be the thing that brings that to term, does the actual work of, you know, gestating and growing this idea, this, you know, inspiration into something that is real and tangible and new. And that's why I don't understand exactly why. I mean, the, the female side of things is considered to be more passive, but obviously it's the thing doing most of the work here. Um, again, we could take gender out of this entirely. We could refer to this energy as, you know, creation dualities. It could be, you know, sperm energy and womb energy. Uh, it could be seed energy and earth energy, it, whatever we want to make it into. This goes really into the idea of the way that these different dualities 
have been uh, basically maligned in our culture throughout history. Um, mostly the things that are associated with feminine energy have been looked at as evil throughout time. Uh, light is considered masculine and dark is considered feminine. And the feminine gets, you know, considered to be evil all the time. Uh, positive is considered to be, uh, you know, positive charge, like electric charge. Uh, positive energy is considered to be masculine and negative energy is considered to be feminine. But the negative is just another word for uh, carrying that energy through. It's something that regulates that energy and allows it to be something else. So... Yeah, all of these words have gotten turned around to the point that, you know, trying to talk about them in English gets you in a big mess. But essentially, I think we could really avoid all of that by just stop using the gender terms to talk about it. Because um, we know now that things are different than that. And this term, like this, this principle actually kind of helped me wrap my head around that in a different way. Um, you know, I've had plenty of friends that are non-binary trans people in my life. Uh, that have really helped me confront this in more of a societal way. But thinking about this historically, like if the idea behind the gender roles that we have are based around specifically your role in procreation, like why would we do that to anybody, especially in this day and age when most people don't want to have kids? Most people are not concerned with procreation. So why would you make them build their entire lives around the role that they would play in the birthing process when that's not something that they're ever going to interact with in their entire lives? And even if they wanted to, we are at a place now where, you know, the more masculine person in the relationship, if you want to stick to these terms, uh, could be the person with the womb. And the more feminine person in the relationship could be the person providing the sperm. So, you know, <laughs> like we don't need these terms to be this anymore. Because especially when it goes on to say and very heavily points out that masculine and feminine are contained within everything. Whether it is manifested as uh, in the physical realm a more masculine being uh, in this term is talking about physical sex. Uh, it still has the feminine quality to it. And, you know, it's all in balance. Everything is, you know, relative to the person who we're talking about. So ascribing people roles in life based on these positions that they take in these archaic ways of thinking just doesn't make any sense anymore. And the fact that cultures where taking care of the person who was able to reproduce uh, with a womb, it was more relative. Those people had a way more advanced version and idea of what gender was. You know, like it was in a, in a small tribe where, you know, if all of the people with wombs got wiped out, the entire uh, population of that tribe would be completely over. But if everybody but two or three people with penises got wiped out, uh, you could just start over again because there would be enough people with wombs there to take care of that and you would be able to create a big enough population out of that that wasn't related to each other that the gene pool could continue on and you would have a healthy, thriving uh, environment again. And even in places where they had to worry more about that kind of thing, which we definitely don't have to worry about now, uh, 
even in those situations, they were more accepting of people who felt like they were outside of that binary, people who felt like they were both sides of that binary. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't have to give you any specific examples. You can look it up yourself if you're not sure about this. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir here. You all understand what I'm saying. I'm just trying to say, just because <laughs> this is full of outdated terms that we don't need to use anymore, doesn't mean the principle itself uh, can't be considered in some way, shape, or form. Um, the <laughs> Although, again, to play devil's advocate here and to talk about the holes that I see in this beyond just the outdated terms, uh, the, one of the things that this talks about is how the masculine and feminine principles that, it, that it's trying to say are universal in the physical realm, the book just straight up says that there aren't enough physical examples of this in material reality to actually give a whole lot of examples. So you're just gonna kinda have to trust us on this. Science needs to catch up and when it does, you'll you'll see. That, that's kind of the attitude that it takes. And um, you know, I don't, I don't really have a whole lot of trust in that. Um, this also gets kind of muddied when it starts talking about uh, the I versus the me. And this is something that it goes into great detail about, um, even though, again, you could take the terms of gender off of this entirely and examine it from another view. This is something that I would encourage people to read to try to understand a little bit more. Um, it's something that kind of falls apart when I try to explain it, but I'll do my best right now. Um, essentially what it's saying is that the I is the consciousness, the, the conscious observer that is the pure essence of the being. And that is referring to that through gender terms as the masculine. Uh, and that the me is the everything else, all of the other stuff. Uh, you know, who you think you are in most situations, the roles you take on, the clothes you wear, the, uh, you know, appropriate language that you use in certain situations, these different things you step into without necessarily thinking about them, that is the me, uh, and that is the feminine side. So this kind of gets a little muddied when we start talking about how they represent themselves, because essentially what it's saying is to create something new in the world and to take charge of your own life, you have to whittle away all of the me to the point that you can separate the me from the I, the conscious observer, and then use that conscious observer, that pure consciousness to basically impregnate the me with a new idea or a new reality that you want to see. And then that me, that feminine side will carry it to term and bring it to reality. Um, it's basically talking about consciousness and subconsciousness uh, or unconsciousness, whatever you want to call it. Um, it tries to say that those terms are derivative of the principle of gender from Hermeticism, but I, again, think that he kind of just switched that around. He saw this trend in psychology of the dual mind, and he was like, that's a good idea. I'm going to say that's gender, and I'm going to turn it into this. Um, you know, however it works. This is, again, huge new thought thing. Um, this is something that basically I believe, uh, and from my understanding, this isn't just my belief, this is my attempted understanding the new thought belief. Maybe I'll do a whole episode on new thought later on, but we'll see what happens with that later. Um, but basically the idea behind new thought in my understanding is the distillation 
of magic practice down to the most bare essentials that you can get. So in ritual magic and in ceremonial magic, um, you know, you'll take a physical ritual, you'll do things that are insanely out of your character, you'll have to collect blood from animals, you might have to kill something or sacrifice something, you'll have to gather all of these items to make a magical, you know, uh, talisman or dagger or, or whatever ritual thing that you need uh, for this ceremony. And the gathering of those things and the killing or the, you know, collecting of blood from animals or whatever, uh, that is meant to basically plant a seed in your unconsciousness as the New Thought people understand it. Um, and again, there are other forms of magic where it's all visualization. You visualize the angels, you visualize the symbols, you visualize uh, your intention happening in the world. And you take yourself to that place in a very disciplined and focused way. You, you make your breathing rhythmic to, to follow these things. And eventually these things will start interacting with you in a way that you are not projecting. You are making these things real through implanting them in your subconscious. And then the angels that you are calling on will start interacting with you in a way that you are not prompting. They will tell you things that are outside of your purview. Um, and essentially this again is a way to train or plant a seed in your unconscious to you know, bring something to term, to bring something new into reality, to, to give birth to a new reality. Um, the new thought people are trying to whittle that down to essentially the bare essentials. And that's why new thought is so easily watered down. Um, it comes down to things like a, a lot of people in the spiritual community have heard of the, uh, the book, The Secret. That's one that I don't know, I've never read the book myself, but I hear from other people and I know that what other people have taken away from it is an extremely watered down version of new thought. That these people think that if I just, you know, make a vision board, I, I clip out a Ferrari and a mansion and a picture of Angelina Jolie because I want to look like her or I want to marry someone like her or I want to have her career, whatever the case may be. And you just put them on a board and you look at it sometimes and think about it, that those things will come true. And that's not how this works. That's not even how they say this works. Even if you don't believe that this works at all, that's not even what they're saying it does because the act of creating the vision board might be some kind of ceremony or some kind of ritual that you can use, but the thing that's the most important about it is that it changes something inside you. It changes your unconsciousness to the point that you feel like you are already there. You are projecting yourself into that reality so much and so frequently or with such fervor or with such imagination that your unconscious, your subconscious, whatever you want to call it, starts to believe that that's reality. And as it starts to believe that that's reality, it will make it reality in the physical world. That's the idea behind the magic of new thought. And that's how they're trying to boil it down, at least to my understanding. Like I said, maybe I'll dive into this deeper in another episode. But even setting aside the glaring ways that the principle of gender is very much intertwined into the new thought avenues of thinking, uh, we still see a lot of glaring holes in this even within the framework of this book itself. Because if we are talking about creation, uh, having to deal with two aspects 
always, if that's the only way that things can come about, if this is a universal concept, then that immediately shoots a hole in the idea of the all creating anything. Because the all is indivisible, the all is one, whole. Uh, nothing can be subtracted from it, nothing can be added to it. So there aren't two sides of it. There aren't two aspects to interact and create something new. It just creates. And even if it were to create a first masculine and feminine, just for the sake of using the terms of the book, uh, if it were to create those two energies first to generate everything else, it still created those out of the oneness of itself. So to say that those are required for any type of generation just kind of doesn't make sense at that point. Uh, also, just putting this out there, that this is just the metaphor that mammals can understand, really. This is something that uh, I've, I've heard this said other places very recently, uh, that we look at all of these things in terms of mother and father, uh, you know, spirits of masculine and feminine, and that's not something that you can apply universally. It's just a metaphor that works well for mammals. It doesn't even work for all the species on this planet because the ideas of what we have, you know, culturally decided are masculine and feminine don't work with the rest of the animal kingdom even. You know, uh, you have seahorses that the father carries all of the eggs and brings those to term. Um, you have anglerfish that the male is just completely absorbed into the female's ass and becomes a DNA creation machine. It's really wild. You should look it up. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of other roles that exist. Asexual reproduction. If that just exists on this planet, what else is there in the universe that we don't even have a clue about? So I think that this is kind of narrow thinking, honestly. And it might be a good metaphor for the way our minds can work and the way that we can use duality within our minds. But to try to claim that this is a universal principle that is in effect on all planes of existence is outrageous, <laughs> I would have to say. Um, yeah, so I think I can go ahead and wrap it up here. That's the principle of gender. And, uh, yeah, that does it. So, yeah, this feels really good to be done with. I have been thinking about this since I started doing this podcast. I knew I was going to cover this book, and it has kind of haunted me since then. I have had it disrupt my meditation, uh, my thought processes as I go throughout the day. I've really been analyzing these principles from as many different angles as I can, and uh, yeah, I'm just so happy to be able to put this into words and get it out there to you, even if it was a little bit long-winded. Uh, I'm really knocking it out of the park with these long-ass solo episodes. So um, yeah, thank you again for taking this journey with me. Uh, it's been really hard but cathartic to look back at a book that got me so far into my own spiritual path and be able to digest it in a different way and critique it. And I think it shows a sign of growth. And maybe in a year or two, I'll look at this podcast and say I was way off on several things I say now. But that's the beauty of growth. It never stops. And when it does, something's wrong. So <laughs> let's hope that that's the case. Um, yeah, I'll shut up now after I tell you how to get a hold of me. 
if you want to yell at me for everything that I said in here or <laughs> talk about this book at all, if you would like to recommend me other books to read, other concepts you want me to cover, people to interview, if you just want to have a conversation, please don't hesitate to get a hold of me. I want to talk to you. That's why I started this show. I want to connect with people who connect with these ideas. Um, get a hold of me on social media, Instagram and Twitter. My handle is monolithseeker on both of them. Really simple. And uh, you can email me at the email address monolithseekerpod at gmail.com. Uh, again, I just want to hear from you. So thanks again. Take care of yourselves. Nah, I don't know how to end these things. Drink enough water. <laughs> okay, bye.